one of my most vivid memories of a world event happened in November 1989, watching on our 13-inch Toshiba tube TV with its antenna ears tuned just the right direction. Uh, Berlin, Germany. Thousands of Germans climbing up a wall, some carrying hammers and others uh, chisels and pickaxes and began to abolish that wall of hostility, to use Paul's words, later to remember it as the wall of shame, a symbol of the Iron Curtain during the Cold War, a divided people and freedom. In November 1989, it was politically abolished. It took two years to physically be destroyed. Some walls are hard to destroy. Dividing walls between peoples and nations are not only of more recent history. Paul spoke of them 2,000 years ago. Did you hear that? Verse 11 of Ephesians 2, Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles, that's the Latin word gentilis, but the Greek word is ethne, ethnic, you ethnic ones. Paul is saying you you who were not Jewish by heritage, all others, speaking to the Ephesians who were mostly Greeks in that day. Remember that at that time you were separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of the promise. The Jews were God's chosen people. They were the only ones with access to his presence and to his promises. And any, any non-Jew, Gentile, any ethnic one, who wanted to be in with God had to become Jewish by ceremonial law, adherence to the sacrificial requirements, and if you were male, circumcision. So there was a wall. There was a barrier uh, between all others and the Jewish people, and ultimately all people and God. There was a barrier. And the Old Testament requirements were steep. Uh, Both the ceremonial ones with their purity requirements, dietary restrictions, Sabbath regulations, and on and on. And then the moral requirements of the law that all men also fell short of. Therefore, the sacrificial system that God put in place, the shedding of blood, it was a messy process, but life in place of our life to be reconciled to God. God instituted a plan for His people to be back into communion with Him. That's His covenant promise And Paul is now saying to uh, the Gentiles, these Greek ones, and therefore to most of us who don't have a Jewish heritage, remember at one time you were separated from Christ. You were alienated. You were outside looking in. You were beyond the wall. And that wall was high, impassable, unclimbable, and seemingly unbreakable. But now in Christ, you who once were far away have been brought near. You were divided. You were separated But because of Christ and His blood, He has broken down the wall, for He Himself is our peace. He has made us both one. He has broken down in His flesh this dividing wall of hostility and abolished the law with its commandments expressed in its ordinances that He might create in Himself one new family in place of two, and so making peace. And He might reconcile us all to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing, putting to death the hostility. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. 
This was such a consistent and passionate preaching point for Paul. You love that. When alliteration just flows, the Holy Spirit must be involved. He was so consistent, he preached this in really every letter that we have preserved in the Scriptures. I read from a number of spots last week. I'll pick one, Galatians 3, 28 and 29. He says, there's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's no male or female. Anything that the world would look to as, as division and divisive and separation and segregation, Jesus Christ has abolished for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring and you are heirs according to the promise. If you are Christ, you may as well have all of that blood and lineage flowing through you. It has been accomplished. For Paul, this wasn't merely a part of the gospel. This was the gospel, that we are all one. There are no more walls between us and God. Jesus has abolished them. We looked at two specifically last week. The wall that was a curtain, not the iron one, but the hand-woven one that hung in the temple 30 feet high, 30 feet wide, four inches thick, a heavy barrier from the holy place in the Jewish temple to the inner holy of holies where the Ark of the Covenant sat, the representation of God's promises and therefore His presence as His cloud dwelt upon that seat. That curtain remained a division. No one could enter into that except for the highest priest. And he could only enter once a year on the Day of Atonement to make reconciliation between God's people and God Himself. That was the first wall. And when Jesus hung on the cross, that curtain, that massive weighty barrier was torn in two from top to bottom as if two hands reached from heaven and rent it apart. The veil is no more. All have access now to the presence and promises of God. Everyone, Jews and non-Jews alike, because of Jesus, that was wall number one. Wall number two is the wall of the law. This ceremonial law, these requirements and regulations, along with the physical outward, the circumcision, and the outward adherence to the law, the moral, the inward, the law was a wall between people and God that none could climb, none could attain, all fell short. Jesus came and fulfilled it. He lived it perfectly in the power of the Holy Spirit and thus nullified it because He alone could go to the cross and become the sacrifice for all men because He alone was perfect. All others needed another sacrifice on their behalf, life for life. Jesus did not need that sacrifice. And so when He gave His life, He was the perfect, spotless Lamb. He abolished that law, that wall of the law. Here's what Peter says in 1 Peter 2.24 and then 3 verse 18. I'll read them consecutively. Peter says, He Himself, Jesus, bore our sins in His body on that tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by His wounds you have been healed. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that He might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. See, all that had previously stood between us and God has been broken down. The only thing that remains is our own sin if we allow it to remain because Jesus has broken that barrier as well. 
And when we come to Him in confession and repentance, we see that wall destroyed and abolished. It's only us who continues to rebuild it. The Apostle John said in 1 John 1.9, if we would confess our sins, the ways we have doubted God, distrusted Him, rebelled against Him, run from Him, that's heart issue much more than it is external behavior. If we would confess our sin, He is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. In a transaction, in a moment that we can experience, we can experience that even today as we come to Him in confession. Thank you, Jesus. What incredible promises. He has broken down all walls between us and God and all peoples and God. If we remain apart and distance from God, it is our own choosing. He invites us in. In fact, he beckons us in. Paul says in Ephesians 2.18, we heard it read, and then I'll read from 3.12, essentially the same promise. Through Christ, we all have access in one spirit to the Father. In Jesus and through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and with confidence. It's incredible. And so we have a choice. We can continue to strive for religious purity, for morality, for behaviorism, hoping that we can do enough, behave enough, earn enough to be welcomed by God, accepted by God, to be forgiven. Forever wondering, though, have we done enough? What is our measuring stick? Do we compare ourselves to others and say, I'm better than, than most? Is that our measuring stick? And so we always come under a weight when it comes to religion of, have we done enough? Can we trust God enough and His promises enough? And that's not the gospel. That's not what's being proclaimed by Paul, by Peter, by John, by what they saw and what they experienced in Jesus. The veil has been torn through His blood. We are not only allowed in, we are beckoned, come. Do we believe and will we receive that as having been done? And if there are no more walls between people and God because Jesus has abolished them, then that means there's no more walls between peoples. And that's what Paul is proclaiming here. That wall of hostility that divided peoples has been shattered. Why then, if we look into our world, does it seem that so many remain political, national, racial, cultural, economical, social, religious, and on and on. The walls that we build and establish we think of when the Berlin Wall, that physical wall of shame, was politically abolished. And though physically it remained for two years as they had to work to destroy it, yet in truth, remnants of that wall and walls like it remain in the hearts of men. And it's nothing new. This other wall, the, probably the clearest wall between peoples, the physical wall that existed, also is in that temple area in Jerusalem on the Temple Mount in Paul's day. There was an outer wall that created a courtyard. The courtyard for the Gentiles. It was as close as they could get to the presence of God. And on that wall was inscribed this. No foreigner, non-Jew, may enter within this wall which surrounds this sanctuary and enclosure. Anyone caught doing so will have himself to blame for his ensuing death. 
Imagine that, being a Gentile on the outside looking in, longing to come to know God and coming up against that barrier that may not have been nearly as opposing as other earthly walls, the Berlin Wall that had that wide expanse named the Death Strip with trenches and barbed wire and armed guards. That's an imposing wall, but that wall around the temple was simply as divisive. The walls of segregation and discrimination that remain in the hearts of men are often even more subtle and yet equally as hostile. Paul had spent the majority of his life striving to preserve that wall, both the physical one in the temple, but more importantly for him, the spiritual one that it represented. He was persecuting those who entered in and For believers in Christ, they needed not to come to the temple to worship. So they were claiming they had crossed that wall spiritually because Jesus had abolished it. They're proclaiming the truth of the gospel. And Paul heard that and it infuriated him. And so he went after the church, persecuting them for claiming that Jesus had broken down these walls, that they, the Gentiles, could come to him anywhere they wanted to worship him and receive his salvation and empowering through the Spirit. Paul was incensed, but God had other plans and purposes for Paul. He met him and ultimately blinded him that he would truly see. He broke Paul that Paul would see what he had broken down, that the scales would be removed from his eyes. You can read that account in Acts chapter 9. Jesus transformed radically his life. The walls that Paul had defended and had he now would work to destroy at the risk of his own life. And it's the message that he preaches in every city. We are all one in Christ Jesus. How radical that must have sounded for anyone that knew Paul's previous life. The opposite of what he had proclaimed. For Paul, it was the very gospel itself. And he didn't merely preach it, he lived it. And he was willing to die for it to the very end. We'll see this in Acts chapter 21, verse 27. Paul goes back to Jerusalem, being warned by his own friends, don't do it, Paul. Then they're trying to kill you now. And if you go back into the hornet's nest, your life may be forfeit. And he said, may it be, it's already been laid down. So Acts 21, 27, he goes back to Jerusalem with friends of his, non-Jews, and the Jews from Asia, seeing Paul in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and they laid hands on him. They cried out, men of Israel, help! This is the man who is teaching that er everyone everywhere, word had gotten out, pretty consistent preaching from Paul. Here's the man who's been teaching everyone everywhere against us Jews and against the law and against this place. Moreover, even he brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. And then after the city was stirred up and the people ran together, they seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple. And at once the gates were shut and they sought to kill him. His life would be forfeit. Tragically, the walls that Jesus had already abolished, men were frantically scrambling to try to rebuild and preserve. And this had been an ongoing debate for even the Jewish Christians have truly all walls been shattered in Jesus? 
You may remember the Jerusalem Council, the first council of the church, Acts chapter 15. Some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. They're putting religious requirements even upon those coming to Jesus. You must behave. You must look, look the part. You must, after all, Jesus is the Jewish Messiah, so you must become Jewish to receive him. This incensed Paul. It was absolutely not the gospel. It was religious behavior, legalism. Eventually, Peter settles the debate, Acts 15, verse 8 and following. God, who knows the heart, bore witness to these Gentiles. These, there's the word ethnic ones again. He's borne witness to all peoples by giving them the Holy Spirit just as He did to us, and He made no distinction between us and them. Remember that phrase, us and them. That's always what's in the hearts of all men. And He made no distinction, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? He could have used the other imagery we're talking about of walls. How dare you rebuild a wall that has been abolished? But here's what we believe. This settles the matter. What we believe is that we will be saved through the grace of our Lord Jesus just as all peoples just as they will. The walls of division and hostility have been abolished. God loves and pursues all peoples and longs for them to be saved. Why then do so many remain in our world out of the overflow of our hearts? It's the work of the enemy as well as the nature of our sinfulness. Last week I took us back to the garden to see the picture of what God had created. Perfect unity and intimate relationship between God and His creation and purpose. That was shattered. And from that moment it was shattered as Adam and Eve trusted the lies of Satan and therefore their own divisive hearts, everything was broken. Immediately division occurs. As God walks through the garden seeking them, they are hiding in shame, divided. Whereas before they were naked and unashamed, now they are aware, conscious, and hiding from God. Division. When he calls them to give account, they all of a sudden begin blaming one another. Adam says, the woman that you, that you gave me. Immediate division and divisiveness. Their firstborn son, Cain, would kill the younger brother, Abel. And down and down the spiral goes throughout history. So from the beginning... We see the brokenness, we see division inspired by the work of the enemy, but truly within the heart of sinful man to create walls that are of us and them. Years after the Jerusalem council, remember what Peter had proclaimed. Peter proclaims, we are all one. This settles it. They've received the Holy Spirit. God himself saw no distinction. How dare we build walls? So Peter proclaims that years later, even Peter continues to struggle with what's in his own heart and the cultural divisions that still remained and were still hostile. 
And Paul records it in Galatians chapter 2, verse 11. He says, But when Peter came to Antioch, I had to oppose him to his face because he stood condemned by his own actions, by his own behavior. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. That was kind of a no-no for the Jews. They had religious requirements that prohibited fellowship at the same table with non-Jews who were not kosher. So here's Peter. He's been eating with the Gentiles, full fellowship, full unity. But when these other leaders came, these men from James, we don't fully know who they are, they came, Peter drew back and separated himself because of their pressure and because of fear of them. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him so that even Barnabas was led astray. I mean, they're taking their cue from Peter, their leader. And if Peter's going to withdraw, withdraw his fellowship from them along these cultural, religious lines, then others were following right along with Peter. It was a charged issue. And Paul says, it goes on to say, but when I saw their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel. See, for Paul, it was the gospel. The way they're behaving was not the gospel. The gospel is unity. And when I saw that their behavior was not in keeping with the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter in front of them all, if you, though you're a Jew, you live like a Gentile under that freedom and not anymore like a Jew under the religious law, how can you force Gentiles to live like Jews? Hypocrisy. Jesus, help us if even Peter can slip back into division and segregation along religious, racial, cultural, and social lines. And men have been doing it ever since. Nothing has changed. And I wonder if I even need to build this case. It seems to be our very nature. Us and them get in and keep others out. How do we do that? By establishing rules and regulations, often unwritten, and enforcing them through manipulation and oppression. And anyone that would truly want to be in must pay the very same price that we paid. It happens as early as elementary school. It intensifies in middle school. It often becomes nuanced and more subtle in high school. And in our communities and societies and nations, it is sometimes veiled, yet always divisive and destructive and often deadly. And I don't know that I have to keep on building this case. If I do, we have a lot more work to do than the time that is allowed. If we will truly hear the gospel and understand it, the division that remains, the dividing walls between peoples would break our hearts. We would be people of grieving and lamentation as well as people of action. And so I ask, do we truly Know the heart of God. And we pray, show us, Lord. Have we forgotten? And we pray, remind us, Lord. Are we fearful like Peter was? Lord, forgive us and help us. God sent His own Son to die on the cross that we might be one. That all peoples might be one. And just as Jesus was sent, now He is sending us. 
As He came with the ministry of reconciliation, He is sending us as His ambassadors with reconciliation to a divided world. And Paul says it in Ephesians. He uses this striking imagery of what Jesus is now building in place of what has been broken. A whole new, unified, and diverse temple. This is God's new dwelling place made of His people, not of stone. Verse 21 of chapter 2. We return to Ephesians 2. In Christ, the whole structure is being joined together and grows into a holy temple in the Lord In Him you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. This is the church. This is His dwelling place. That we are all one. And if we would fast forward to the end, even beyond our time now, a glimpse of what heaven will be like. It was given to the Apostle John. This is Revelation chapter 7, verse 9. This is the vision the Apostle John receives and writes down for the church. He says, after this, and there was a whole, a whole lot he'd been writing on, after this, I looked and behold, a picture of heaven, a glimpse of eternity, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all, every ethnic group, every ethnic group, from all tribes and all peoples and all languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in hands, crying out with a loud voice. Don't you love that? Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Did you hear this? Every nation, every tribe, every peoples, every language crying out with one voice. What will that sound like? I tend to think it is distinct in every tongue. And yet we will hear it somehow as one. This is the picture of the church for all eternity. This is our coming reality. Do you get this? Every tribe, tongue, people, and nation at the throne. That means as... John saw that glimpse. There is distinction. There is distinction remains. We do not become uniform. We are still unique, yet unified. Distinction, but no division. That is the picture and the glimpse of heaven. And if Jesus taught us to pray, your kingdom come, on earth as it is in heaven, and we have a picture of heaven given to us, then it's His desire for us. God is at work restoring all that has been. We are actually standing right now between two gardens. The perfect garden of Eden that God created without any division. And the garden city that will be our eternal home where the tree of life will line the streets and the river that flows through it where the Lamb of God, the Lion Himself that we've already sung about today, will sit on the throne and we will gather in proclamation and praise of Him forevermore. We are between two gardens. God is at work reconciling all things to Himself. And He has given us the ministry of reconciliation. Jesus taught us to pray it. He wants it done. 
But furthermore, it's what he himself prayed the night before he was crucified. It's one of the primary laments and heart cries that he pours out to God in that other garden, that garden of Gethsemane. He prays for his disciples and for all who would come after them. That means us, that we would be one. With some of the most striking, powerful words in all of Scripture. This is John 17, verse 20. Jesus prays, Father, I do not ask for these only, but also for all those who will believe in me through their word. So not just these disciples, but for all disciples. That means us. Here's what he asks, that they may all be one. Just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I in them, you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you have loved me. He repeats himself twice there. Do you hear that? He is crying out to the Father that this would be so because this is the gospel that we are unified with God the Father and with one another. That is the gospel message and Jesus has made it possible. In fact, it is done. We just are not yet experiencing it. Do you get that? That the greatest Testimony to the world of God's active, living work in his people is unity. A world that is divided along an infinite number of lines and is hostile towards one another would look to a people, God's church, and say, how can that be? That is impossible. That they actually are one. That there's no division that they are unified, that they humbly serve and love one another. How is that possible? It's beyond the strength and power of men. Amen. That is the greatest testimony to our world, unity, that we would be one. Jesus taught us to pray it. He wants it done. He prayed to the Father that it would be. We've got work to do. He's empowered us to do that work. It has been suggested that the greatest way to build diversity and unity within the church and within a community is to simply proclaim the whole gospel relentlessly. Just as Paul did. But it cost him his life. Are we willing to give ours for a glimpse of heaven on earth? Truly countless men and women throughout history have been willing to die. Some simply in the name of freedom, but many in the name of Jesus and the freedom he provides. Will we? What must we do? We must respond spiritually now, this morning, and practically as we go from this place into the fields he is sending us and planting us into. Let me begin with a practical, just a suggestion. There are many things. God may be convicting our hearts and we know immediately how to apply what he's asking us to do. Something he's already been stirring, already been working on. For others, 
I'm guessing if you're like me, you're like, this is so daunting and so big, how could I do anything? How can I make a difference? Even looking around this room, how could we collectively make any difference in unity in our world that is so divided? And it becomes daunting, and so we don't know what to do. Here's one suggestion. It is simple and scary at the same time. Consider this a summer homework assignment. It doesn't have to happen this week, but if you're with me, get it down. Let's go. Host a meal. Simple, maybe scary, because I'm going to put on the requirement that you invite at least half of the people who you don't know very well, and primarily people who are not quite like you, and that could mean any number of different things, as we know there's a lot of diversity in our culture. People that are not quite like you, that maybe you would not normally share a meal with, maybe have never been invited to their table. Would it be your immediate context, your coworkers, your immediate neighbors? We shouldn't have to look too far to find a group to easily invite. They may say no. Our faithfulness is to invite and open our table as we open our hearts with no other agenda but to listen. Try to come up with a few good questions that would inspire stories, not your own, unless it's being asked of you. What was growing up like for you? Oh, tell me how you fell in love if it's a couple. Tell me that story. People tend to like to tell stories. Listen. That's it. No other agenda. Nothing. If it's asked, why are you doing this? You can say something like, it'd be great to give honor to Jesus. I don't know. Just to to be honest, this might sound a little strange, but I'm a follower of Jesus, and he has opened his table to me and invited me in, and I have no business being at that table. He's shown me grace and mercy, and he's asked me to extend that same to all peoples. He wants all peoples to be one. That may be a bold thing to say. You may clearly say it in your own words, but you give honor and glory to Jesus. It's not about us. It's amazing what breaking bread together will do to break down walls. So simple and yet so crucial. We saw in Peter, in his story, how many walls were broken down because they ate together. And the opposite is true. How many walls remained and were built because they would not eat with one another? Where do you live? Who are your six to eight closest neighbors? Are they at your table? Have they been invited? Brian Loritz, pastor, author, diversity activist. Maybe some of you know of him, have heard of him. I'm getting to know him by, uh, by, from afar. He preached at the Alliance Council this year, powerful, convicting, and encouraging, so I believe in spirit-inspired message, he said this. He said, with passion, ethnic diversity is not a social justice issue. It is a kingdom of God and gospel issue. Do minorities, when they walk into your church, feel like strangers and aliens, or do they feel at home? Your sanctuary will reflect your dinner tables. If we want a diverse church, a glimpse of heaven on earth, it begins at our tables. There are many more practical things that can be done. This is just one suggestion or encouragement. I intend to revisit it. The testimonies could be given. 
If God is convicting you to respond in a different way, follow him. We also respond spiritually, rightly, in this moment as we come to this table reminded of what God has done and is doing to make us one. So we come in awe of him and who he is, aware of the walls he has broken down to reach us, that we are mere beggars in the presence of a king with our best hope being to gather scraps around that table and yet he beckons us, come. He lifts our heads. At this table, we're reminded, it begins here, we're the least likely ones. We are the outsiders looking in, the strangers, the aliens. And if we don't recognize the walls that he has broken down to reach us, we will never extend that ministry to others. So we come humbly. We come broken, being lifted up and being healed. I don't think they're mutually exclusive. That we could come shaking our heads at what he has done and also have our heads lifted high because he's drawn us in. And so we respond spiritually. And there's much more that can be done and should to join Jesus in ensuring walls remain broken or are broken from passionate and persistent prayer, heartfelt grieving and lament for our sins of division and segregation. Lord, open our eyes to where we don't even see and vulnerable and faith-filled pursuits for reconciliation. But of this utmost importance is that we first see the walls he's broken down to reach us. Pray with me. Jesus, cut us to our heart. You've reconciled us to yourself and given us the ministry of reconciliation. You've given us the commission and the power to fulfill it. Now give us conviction to both open our hearts and our tables to all peoples. We open them to you now. We come to you because you've come for us. And now you beckon us. And so we come. Invite the team to come and help lead us as we create this space to respond. If you're a guest with us, if you're a family friend with us. We always have room to respond to God's word, whether it's simply sitting and thinking and pondering because the spirit is speaking something to us, even if that's a new sense and a new experience. And we come to the table, hopefully not alone in some ways with this body, you'll never be alone, but with friends, with family, when you are ready to receive what God has given, this table is open to all who want to walk toward Jesus, recognizing Lord, I have, I have no business coming to you, being adopted by you, being accepted by you, healed by you, and yet you say, come. I don't know so much about what that means, but I draw near. I receive what you have done. His body represented in the blood, broken upon the cross, that we might be healed. By his stripes, we are healed. And the cup represents his blood that was shed for us, his life in place of ours. So Lord, you're our living hope. Awaken us again to you. Remind us of your ministry of reconciliation and give us that same ministry as we go from here. May these songs that we sing be proclamations, sung prayers. And if you can't sing, try. If you're not ready to sing, let them flow from your heart. And let's be his church that responds, especially as we go into the fields he sends us.